Let us pray together. You, you only first in our hearts. You whose power flows through love. We long to join the ranks of your people who have boldly stood and withstood the evils of their day. And we know our weakness and we know our need for your strength. Empower us and let us strengthen each other by your spirit through Christ who has gone before us and gives us courage. Amen. In the summer of 1984, when the original sanctuary movement was underway, in response to political killings and U.S.-sponsored violence in El Salvador, a group of Anabaptists from a variety of nations were gathered at Mennonite World Conference in Strasbourg, France. And Ron Sider got up to preach. He brought a bold message with a piercing analysis of Western Mennonite and Brethren pacifism and with warnings about conforming to dominant culture and being lulled by wealth. And Sider essentially asked, what if Anabaptist Christians invested, prepared, and trained our young people and others by the thousands to go out into the world physically to interrupt situations of violence? What if, he asked, we were willing to die to make peace. CPT's website reads, his call to active peacemaking sparked study groups in Anabaptist churches all over North America and ultimately gave rise to the formation of Christian peacemaker teams, CPT, in 1986. Incidentally, the same year that the Mets won the World Series. It was a good year. But the call we hear in Ephesians to stand and to withstand, equipped with the armor of God, armor that grows within us and by God's grace strengthens us, sent me back this week to this radical vision of Ciders and brought my mind and my heart also to M.J. Sharp's uh, great and deep commitment to dangerous peacemaking, which got him killed in the Congo um, just in March of last year. But stepping back a little bit, we know that we are not opposing blood and flesh enemies, so let me try to say a little bit about the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic forces, these powers and principalities that uh, we often don't know quite what to do with in um, scripture. Who is it that we're struggling with? What is this that we're struggling against? Well, in the vein of Walter Wink, I'm not primarily thinking of individual malicious spirits or demons who are attacking individual followers of Jesus, but rather I'm thinking of human structures and institutions or even powerful ideas 
that grow large and take on a life of their own and perhaps become idols and seem to wield a dominating power over people beyond any human ability to control them or in any simple way to shape their direction. These systems and structures are not easily changed even by people within the structures themselves. And we've seen these kinds of things happen. We might say that the buildup of military with hundreds of bases that we have in other countries an active military in 150 countries around the world in the name of protecting ourselves could be considered one of these powers and principalities that has a spiritual aspect to it. Kind of a severe twisting of a human impulse to be safe, which has become a monstrous and dominating force worldwide. It could be that the idea of what we would sometimes call free markets as something that is good for us and the ways that we've devised money to make more money, that these have taken on a sinister life of their own, impoverishing millions around the world and creating a super elite class of humanity, people who don't actually need to know or see what their wealth costs in human suffering and even in the collapse of ecosystems. Now, that's not to say that corrupt and larger-than-life human systems are always or even usually evil through and through, but that they have morphed in some way to become agents of destruction and forces that oppose the goodness and mercy of God in the world. And in the end, as love would have it, God's long-term project is to redeem them, to transform and remake the powers and principalities, the authorities, so that they end up participating in the salam, the overall thriving that God has in mind, the fullness of life that God is bringing for all that God has made. And sometimes we look around and we might be pulled toward despair or tempted to believe that the destructive forces at work in our world or the behaviors um, that cause harm are more powerful than God's love and God's power to heal and restore. And I think that's where the writer of Ephesians comes in. Wants to clear that up for us and make it very clear and, and really with a passion is speaking a lot about God's power along with generous mercy and forgiveness and boundless love. And the strength, that word strength comes over and over, that God gives to Christ's followers, to the church. In Ephesians 1, the first foundation is God's power that raised Christ from the dead. Above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, And God has put all things under his feet and has made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This grand vision of Christ being raised up and ruling. And then in the next chapter, it's very clear that God, in in great love, 
made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and then broke down the walls of hostility between us as human beings. And in chapter 3, there's this prayer for the Ephesians, for the church there, that you would be strengthened in your inner being and have power to comprehend the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which goes beyond all knowing, so that you'll be filled with the fullness of God. These are the things that we need to be able to stand. And skipping into chapter 5, the, the encouragement is to be imitators of God in kindness, in God's forgiveness, and in loving one another as we have been so greatly loved. And it's all of these things that build up to this final chapter where here in Ephesians 6, we're not only imitating God's loving and merciful ways, but we are putting on God's own armor to join in standing against all that opposes God's ways. Now, maybe especially as Mennonites, this is not particularly our usual way of thinking about ourselves. Armor? Like, fighting against? Ah, is that real? I don't know. What is up with the armor language? For these folks, the people who were hearing this letter would be very familiar, all too familiar, with Roman soldiers walking their streets. And so it would be very easy for them to picture each item of armor as it was listed. And it is, I think, intentionally ironic to pair this military imagery with the ways of Jesus. Clearly, it's not about actual fighting people in the world. But this intentionally jarring and strange combination is showing us, giving us a picture of how to stand in God's power. And there's this strong, strong um, exhortation at the beginning of the chapter to be empowered. So how are we able to stand and withstand in these days? How to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of God's power? And how to move our feet to be armed and dangerous to the powers and principalities, to the rulers and cosmic forces that threaten the well-being of all creatures in our day. The image and the method is so unusual, perhaps it's enough to be disarming. But is this image of doing battle with evil actually what Jesus was intending? Is it compatible? We might ask, maybe some of you still aren't convinced, Compatible with Jesus' call to be peacemakers. Well, if we consider his boldness in confronting injustice and lies and abuse where he saw them, I think we'd have to say yes. Ron Sider in this same sermon puts it this way. Consider Jesus' response when a soldier unjustly struck him on the cheek at his trial. Instead of turning the other cheek and meekly submitting to this injustice, he protested. If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me, Jesus says. Apparently, Jesus thought that protesting police brutality or engaging in civil disobedience in a nonviolent fashion was entirely consistent with his command not to resist the one who is evil. 
What did Christ's power look like in his ministry? What, what examples of power can we remember? The power of truth-telling, as we've been talking about these last weeks. Exposing lies. Exposing the corruption of systems which kept the most vulnerable people down. Power for healing. For making people whole. Power for teaching and giving new understanding. Power to break down walls. And power to win over this power of, of conversion and transformation. Imagine this letter being read aloud, as it probably was, to this gathered people of the way in Ephesus. This suiting up to wage peace is meant for the whole community. It's being spoken to the entire gathered community. And so everyone together is putting on this nonviolent armor. And I won't go, I won't get to each of the pieces of armor today, but I wanted to raise up a couple. This belt of truth, putting on the belt of truth, is again this telling the truth that we've been reminded of in these past two weeks with Clara's very bold truth telling and Todd's reminder of how crucial it is, especially in these days, to be people who face the truth and who are willing to speak it. And part of telling the truth is being honest about the path that Jesus walked and invites us to walk with him, which is not particularly safe. We note that the victory of God came after death, that God raised Jesus after he had resisted the powers to the point of being crushed by them. Trusting in God and God's power to save and not willing to resort to violence in defense of his own life. If anything, these pieces of armor are acts of trust. And this breastplate of righteousness, or as Judy uh, helped us to see, this righteousness and justice are so intricately woven together in Scripture. In a way, we could say this is protecting our heart by doing right, covering your heart with justice. And at the same time, this covering that goes over our hearts is necessary to prevent our hearts from being crusted over with despair or cynicism. Put on the breastplate of justice. And what does make you ready to express the gospel of peace? What do our feet need? What kind of shoes allow us to move into this speaking of peace and loving our enemies to the point of winning them over? This is a hard thing to even contemplate. Loving our enemies to the point of winning them over. When Sider tackled the challenge that he saw in the world for Christians to be willing to put everything on the line in the ways that armies do. He was suggesting that Christians would have to be willing to die by the thousands for peace. He said, unless we are ready to die developing new nonviolent attempts to reduce international conflict, we should confess that we never really meant the cross was an alternative to the sword. 
What would happen, he said, if the Christian church developed a new, nonviolent peacekeeping force of 100,000 persons ready to move into violent conflicts? Well, he predicted that we would die by the thousands sometimes. But he said everyone assumes that for the sake of peace, it is moral and just for soldiers to get killed by the hundreds of thousands and even millions. Do we have as much courage and faith as soldiers, he asked. Now, Sider's sermon is powerful, and I commend it to you. And his challenge is as urgent and relevant now as it was 34 years ago, which in itself is sobering. And I'd also like to point out that there are some of the issues at work that Clara raised for us the other Sunday about white people coming in again to try to fix things, sometimes creating a new intervention to fix problems created by previous Western intervention. And so before we get too caught up in some of these dramatic and and I think still essential to consider movements toward, um, as CPT originally said, getting in the way of violence, which they've, they've now shifted because of some of the things I've just mentioned. What if we considered what, what is right before us here in Lancaster, in our own city, and in our own lives Here in Lancaster, what if we continue to show up at public meetings on police use of force? And what if we increased our numbers at these meetings? What if, as some have already suggested, we make specific invitations to our neighborhood police officers to learn that they would come and learn more about our community meal and how we want to run it and what we would hope from from them? and to build relationships that might give us some influence about how they police our community uh, friends who are most vulnerable. How might this, which is bound to be messy and complicated, help us to put on the belt of truth, to cover our hearts with justice, and to find the footwear that we need to proclaim the good news of peace, perhaps even to these officers? And maybe we would learn something as we get into those relationships. Maybe we would find ourselves receiving some good news. We don't know until we enter into them. How might these interactions move us to cover our brains with God's saving power and send us into deeper prayer? What about all the smaller steps that come before or perhaps Develop a readiness to die in pursuit of peace. What are those steps that we need to be taking? What are the risks that feel almost as bold to us where we are right now? Risks that we have yet to take for peace, for God's salam and well-being for all creation. Perhaps a readiness to be arrested for getting in the way of ICE officers sending political asylum seekers back to their deaths, or other forms of civil disobedience that feel too risky to us, but perhaps are part of our call. What risk that might have seemed like too far or too much is now calling to us in this moment 
in our time, when the numbers of refugees are sure to increase as our planet warms, when hospitality to strangers becomes more urgent, when violence against strangers and anyone who is deemed other is on the increase in our land. So let us be sure to take the shield of faith into each day, taking as our example the great trust that Jesus had in the power of God to bring victory even through a Roman instrument of horrific execution. And because a shield is something that's not attached to your body like many of these other pieces of armor, it seems conceivable to me that if you cannot hold yours up one day, your sister or your brother can shelter you with theirs. And that your shield might need to be covering me or mine, you, when we need this. Because being strong in the strength of God's power is something we must do together. Standing firm is something we do side by side in our different expressions of Christ's body on the earth. And when we realize what it takes to keep putting on this armor day after day of telling the truth and facing the truth, of shielding, our, covering our hearts with righteousness and justice, of taking up that trust that we carry, We know that the call at the end of our passage to pray is so deeply, deeply needed. So as we stand, let us be committed to pray for all the saints everywhere who are standing with truth at their gut and justice covering their hearts and lungs, with salvation, with the healing and freeing work of God covering their minds, and with trust in God held up and even held up for each other against all flaming arrows of despair and against the guilt or the weight of thinking that we must live this call without God's help. Let us continue to ask each other to pray. And notice when you are nudged internally to open your heart to God, whether it's while you're walking your dog or looking at the night sky when you take out your garbage or on your way to work, let us continue to keep alert and pray at all times, at any time, with any kind of prayer. You notice the wide open encouragement in verse 18. Keep on praying. Pray for all of the saints. Any sort of supplication, do it. And especially let's lift to God as Paul was asking for prayer for himself or the writer was asking for prayer. Let us continue to lift especially all those who are taking great risk to their own bodily safety in pursuit of peace and in walking Christ's ways. And so let us continue to do this standing together. And we may find, as we look to our right and to our left, not only our sisters and brothers at East Chestnut, but also veterans of war who are now ardent in longing for an end to all wars, having seen the horrors of it, as I found myself with veterans yesterday at Horsham. But let us continue to encourage one another in the strength of Christ Jesus to continue to stand. And now in the words of Ephesians, to the one who by the power at work within us, by the power at work within us, 
is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.